This episode is brought to you by Squarespace. Start building your website today at squarespace.com. Enter offer code Irish Times at checkout to get 10% off. Squarespace's European Operations and Customer Service Office is located right here in Dublin. Squarespace, build it beautiful. You're listening to the Irish Times Worldview Podcast. Hello and welcome to this week's edition of Worldview. I'm Sinead O'Shea, filling in for Dennis Staunton. Later in the show, Dennis will discuss China's recent display of military might with Beijing correspondent Clifford Kunin. But first, we're going to focus on what remains the biggest global news story, the continued attempt by tens of thousands of people to seek refuge within the EU. There was chaos over the weekend in Central Europe as the Austrian border with Hungary and Slovakia was opened and over 20,000 asylum seekers crossed over en route to Germany. Thousands are continuing to land along the Mediterranean coastline. Meanwhile, public opinion reached a new intensity after the image of Ilan Kurdi, the three-year-old who drowned as he and his family tried to reach the Greek island of Kos, was disseminated across the world. In Strasbourg, European Commission President Jean-Claude Juncker is expected to unveil an EU proposal to relocate an additional 120,000 refugees, a figure that will put pressure on many EU countries, including Ireland. I'm joined now by our European correspondent, Suzanne Lynch, in Strasbourg to discuss how this latest part of the crisis will unfold. Suzanne, Fintan O'Toole wrote a very interesting piece in the Irish Times this week about the potential for this crisis to serve as a new inspirational and unifying force for European values, values which have been in some disarray, especially post-Greece. How much is that viewpoint shared within the EU? Yes, um, I mean, Fintan's piece is touching on an issue there in terms of maybe this is the big moment for Europe to remind people of its positive attributes, to remind people what is the meaning of, of Europe and what it can offer people. But I think, unfortunately, the reality is is a bit much more complex than that. I mean, really, I think what we've seen with this migration crisis is really a divided Europe. There's strong divisions between member states and really between East and West, really, on this issue of how best uh, to tackle this migrant crisis. And really, it's, it's revealed some of the uh, contradictions and um, structural problems that have been there in how the European Union runs its asylum policy. For example, the lack of a really truly EU-wide immigration and asylum policy. I think that's really been revealed to be lacking with this crisis. So I think it's opened up more questions uh, than answers for the European Union. Okay. Can you tell me a little bit more about the significance of these divisions? I mean, do you think these, these divisions will continue? Yeah, I think the EU is, is, is very divided. Obviously, Germany has taken a, a hugely a lead role in this uh, crisis. Um, and then we've seen different views from different countries. Britain has been very strongly opposed to the idea of mandatory quotas. Um, and this, uh, this idea is shared by countries as diverse as Spain, on the one hand, and also a lot of the Central and Eastern European countries who, again, are opposed to mandatory quotas. And in EU law over the last... 20 or 30 years, this idea of imposing quotas on countries has been completely you know, taboo for the European Union. There's a strong sense within Europe that each country still should exert a lot of power over its national sovereignty when it comes to immigration rights. But this is something that cap- national capitals should decide, not Brussels. So it's going to be very, very hard to shift uh, European Union uh, opinion on this. There'd be a fe- there is a fear from some countries that if you introduce mandatory quotas this time is the setting a precedent and from now on the countries are going to lose control of how many immigrants they are permitted uh, to, to accept. Okay, yet 
Angela Merkel seems possessed of extraordinary energy for this project. How do you account for this? And how much do you think she is following the lead of Juncker? Do you think it bears any relationship to what happened with Greece? Um, I have to say, I think um, Jeremy has to be commended on this. And I think, as usual, uh, Angela Merkel has read the political pulse of her country. Uh, The German public, by and large, are behind the Chancellor on this. Uh, Public opinion is in favour of of accepting more refugees. And I think, yet again, with the Greece crisis in a a similar way, I mean, Merkel took a a very strong line on Greece, and I think she reflected her public's view on Greece. And she's done similarly uh, with with the migration crisis. Um, Now, Germany has a history, particularly in the, you know, the Bosnian conflict of accepting refugees, it argues that it can cope with um, the uh, influx, as Merkel called it, of um, maybe 800,000 extra refugees this year. Economically, it's prepared to, to uh, pay the 3.3 billion or so it's going to cost the country. It says it can take, um, absorb uh, this extra workforce and it, it, it believes it's going to add to, to its country. So I think uh, Merkel, I mean, as, as always in the European Union, and um, Germany has huge sway in terms of what the European Union does as a bloc. Um, it, it appears that Merkel has convinced France, which was a little bit more wavering about the idea of mandatory quotas. France and Germany and Italy, which have always been uh, calling for more uh, burden sharing, but these three countries are strongly for um, the Juncker plan, this idea of mandatory relocation. Um, so the, the thing will be, will they be able to bring the other countries with them? Okay, but essentially you're saying she's following a, a domestic prompt. But, you know, again, she followed that when it came to Greece and that may have long-term implications for the EU project. So are we to infer then that this just is not a concern for her? Um, no, I think, I mean, I think Merkel genuinely is making um, a, a very uh, thought-through political decision here on this. Um, she has taken the leadership on this. Um, she, she, in a way, rather than taking the lead from Juncker, I think um, the European Commission, in the sense, are taking their lead from Germany. Mm-hmm. Um, after all, what the Commission is proposing, and, and they should be commended, but after all, it is only 120,000 extra refugees across the whole of Europe. Germany has said it's going to accept 800,000. So, in a sense, Germany has set a very, very high standard here that the rest of the European Union uh, can only hope to follow, I suppose. Okay. And you don't feel that Hollande feels under more pressure this week following the news that Marine Le Pen might defeat him in a potential French presidential election in its first round? Yeah, I mean, I think with every country, domestic political pressures are uh, are weighing on political decisions when it comes to uh, migration. As with Ireland, an election is coming up in a number of European countries, still a bit away in France. But yeah, you've always got the pressure of, of the far-right immigration parties. Um, Hollande, by the two main parties in France, indeed, have for a long time, particularly in last year's European elections and local elections, have been feeling the pressure from uh, from the right-wing parties in France. But it seems for at the moment that, again, public opinion in, in France um, generally uh, is, is warming to the idea of, of refugee uh, quotas. And it looks like France will back that plan that being proposed by Juncker. Okay. Can you tell me as well about the attitudes towards Hungary and Slovakia that are in Brussels and Strasbourg? Um, uh, yeah, that's been one of the most interesting um, narratives from uh, over the last few weeks has been the strong articulation of an opposition to migrant quotas from countries like Hungary and Slovakia. Hungary, of course, has found itself at the uh, epicentre of this crisis um, with thousands of refugees uh, streaming into the European Union across the Hungarian border with Serbia. Um, and, and to that extent, there's a certain amount of uh, sympathy for Viktor Orban. 
Um, he, you know, his country is, after all, a huge transit country for a lot of these migrants. At the same time, uh, some of his comments have provoked a lot of anger in the European Union. His casting of this conflict as a kind of uh, a battle between Christian Europe and um, Islamic immigrants um, was strongly criticised. Uh, but this is nothing new. Viktor Orban has been a problematic presence for the European Union for a long time. Um, his right-wing views on a lot of issues, particularly in terms of um, justice, law and order, uh, the decision um, to restrict internet access that, that had to be reduced, that had to be reversed uh, last year following protests in the capital. These kind of things have been on the radar for quite some time with, with Hungary. So for an extent, to an extent, people are not that surprised at some of the language that's been emanating from Budapest. Okay. And can you tell me a little bit more about what is expected from the Juncker plan? Well, what we're going to be looking at is some kind of a, a mandatory relocation plan. Um, so really, the reason this is so uh, radical in a sense, it, the numbers sound small, but this would be the first time that the European Union is, is going to consider taking, um, spreading the burden throughout the European Union. In other words, um, raising questions about the Dublin Convention. That's the EU law that states that migrants must apply for asylum in the country where they first arrive in the European Union. So essentially the Juncker proposal is tinkering with that, saying no, migrants who arrive in Italy, Greece and probably Hungary as well, and um, that they can actually uh, be moved onto other countries. So this has huge ramifications in terms of EU law in this area, that are we looking at the beginning of the end, if you like, for the Dublin Convention. Um, now obviously Juncker already, and, and to be fair to the Commission, they were ahead of the game on this. Earlier this year they uh, proposed a relocation plan for 40,000 refugees. In the end, member states only backed uh, the plan for 32,000. Um, and now this will be heated in visiting another 120,000. But the big, uh, the key question will be next Monday, Monday the 14th September. That's when Justice and Home Affairs Ministers of the European Union are meeting in Brussels to reflect and discuss the Juncker plan that's been announced this week in Strasbourg. And then we'll see a bit more detail about, you know, whether um, this will actually be adopted by member states. Okay. Is it likely to be too little too late? Well, I mean, uh, undoubtedly 120,000 euro is a drop in the ocean. Um, there's obviously millions of uh, Syrian refugees in, in camps, mainly in the border countries, Jordan, Lebanon, Turkey. So yes, I mean, in, the, in that sense, um, it, it's not going to be enough. But I think it does send, set a, in a very, very important precedent about the EU's migration policy. What we are going to be Obviously, seeing those other countries doing their own thing, Germany, who's going to saying that it's nevertheless going to accept 800,000 refugees this year. And on the other hand, we're going to see Britain, who is basically taking a bilateral approach to this. It's, uh, David Cameron announced this week a plan to accept 20,000 Syrian refugees over five years. Um, uh, Britain is not getting involved in the EU programme like Ireland it has a, an automatic opt-out and won't be opting into that. So we'll probably see some kind of a centralised EU programme alongside other countries um, you know, using their own prerogative on how they handle uh, the migration issue to some extent. Okay. Finally, Suzanne, how much is this issue preoccupying people in Brussels and Strasbourg? Um, it's absolutely huge, uh, Sinead. It's, it's completely uh, dominating the uh, political agenda in Brussels and Strasbourg and indeed across most member states. I mean, headlines on every paper, um, it's, it's dominating um, political narrative. And there's a, there's a sense of panic in the European Union about you know, what, what can be done about this. Um, and as I said, to be fair, the Commission had already announced some kind of migration plan earlier this year. 
Um, but I think we've seen a change. People like Donald Tusk, the head of the European Council, the sense this year that he was not particularly in favour of the mandatory quotas idea. Now even he has called for the European Union to take at least 100,000 refugees. So I think this, the last few weeks, have seen a, a sea change in the EU's response to this, and it's, it's absolutely the dominant political issue of the day. And is this down to that image of Ireland Kurdi, or is this just cumulative? To an extent, yes, but I think since August, I mean, I think the um, the incident of um, the 71 people who died and in the lorry in, in Austria, I mean, that was hugely a turning point as well. Um, and I think that's had, that had a massive impact. So, so, no, I think in Brussels, alarm bells have been ringing a little bit earlier. I think the, the picture you mentioned, I think that has more instigated a very strong emotional response from around, around the world from the public. Mm-hmm. But no, I think the European Union, um, for the last few months, uh, I think this issue has been uh, gaining more and more prominence. Okay. Suzanne Lynch in Strasbourg, thank you so much. Next, we're going to hear Dennis Staunton talking to Beijing correspondent Clifford Coonan about China's military might. This episode is brought to you by Squarespace. Start your free trial site today with no credit card required at squarespace.com. When you decide to sign up for Squarespace, make sure to use the offer code IRISHTIMES to get 10% off your first purchase. Squarespace. Build it beautiful. Last week, China announced that it was cutting the size of its military by 300,000. But the announcement coincided with a massive display of military might in Beijing. And military analysts have suggested that the cut would in fact make the Chinese military a more effective and lethal fighting force. So what's it all about? To find out, I'm joined now from Beijing by our correspondent Clifford Coonan. Clifford, what is the meaning of this troop cut? Well, the initial intention of of the statement that they were going to cut the number of troops by 300,000 from 2.3 million now was read as um, being a sign of the country's peaceful intentions. That was the way it was presented by President Xi Jinping during yesterday's massive display. However, um, as you point out, um, many analysts are also saying that this is the way that militaries are going around the world. Armies are, are streamlining, they're cutting headcount and focusing more on developing military capability, on um, boosting technological capabilities, and on um, developing uh, better navies and um, other IT-focused forms of of weaponry. So the the other part of the announcement seems to involve a restructuring of the command structure, which appears to shift power away from the ground forces towards the Navy, the Air Force, and the Strategic Missile Defence Services. That's right. I mean, a lot of people were joking yesterday that the 300,000 would probably just be redeployed in the Navy, because the Navy has been the focus of of China's military expansion in recent years, um, which uh, combines with the the country's growing territorial, what's read as territorial ambitions in the region, uh, which has led to a lot of tensions with its neighbours, particularly about its intentions in the South China Sea. Um, What we're seeing is uh, what the an aircraft carrier uh, from from the Russians, which they've reconditioned and just deployed, the Liaoning. Uh, And there's also a lot more uh, focus on medium-term missiles. Uh, That was one of the things in that spectacular display yesterday that was worth noticing was how much blue and white camouflage was compared to what would normally be a a green, an olive green sort of camouflage. There was very much a heavy naval presence there. And um, going forward, this is the thing that... um, this is the area that I think the military really wants to expand in. 
And what about the the ground forces and the the ground troops, the the actual uh, army? Are, are we seeing a, a loss of influence and power for that group in Chinese society? Yeah, it's it's, it's a bit hard to read. The, the People's Liberation Army is um, is a very it's an opaque organization. We don't with this surprisingly that we know about it. Um, and it's headed by Xi Jinping. One of his three titles is that he's chairman of the military commission. Um, so he is ultimately, he's the commander-in-chief just as in the U.S. Um, but there has been a shift towards the Navy in terms of influence and also because of some high-profile corruption cases within the Army side of the, of the PLA that there, there has been certain, I wouldn't, you wouldn't want to go so far as to say that the image has been tainted, but certainly there has been a shift of influence there. It's also a way of President Xi showing that he has authority and that he's, he's stamping his authority on, the, on the, all three branches of the Defence Forces. Um, so um, there's quite a lot going on at the moment as far as we can tell. Um, but definitely with China beginning to look outward more and also with the attention, it seems to be moving away from an invasion of Taiwan. Uh, an invasion of Taiwan would obviously involve deployment of land forces. But um, there seems to be a shift away from that now as relations with Taiwan have, have eased, uh, or tensions with Taiwan have eased. So um, I, think, I think there is a lot going on, but I think the focus is definitely now on the naval wing of the services. Now, you mentioned, uh, Clifford, uh, the tensions and the territorial disputes uh, between China and some of its neighbours in the region. How have those neighbours been responding to these announcements and indeed to, yes, to last week's big display of military might in Beijing? Um, I think the thing about last week's display was that... Um, the fundamental thing is that it was a, about I was an anti-Japanese display. I've been referring to Japan 70 years ago, but many people are asking why, after 70 years, do you decide to commemorate the end of the Second World War? Traditionally, you would have these big military displays for a national day on October 1 to mark the founding of the of the. Um, of the People's Republic of China. So um, definitely the intent is is a show of strength towards Japan. Um, looking to the other neighbours, Vietnam was at, at the parade, uh, which was significant in itself because there have been a lot of tensions with Vietnam over the Paracel Islands and, and other areas. Um, the Philippines was a definite um, no-show, no uh, and the Philippines are particularly annoyed at, at um, what they see happening there. Um, the South Koreans showed up. Um, they've, they've also got their tensions. Um, obviously, the Taiwanese weren't there because they were the losing side in the civil war. So generally, I think um, the, the feeling among the neighbours was that uh, the parade last week was a show of, um, of sabre-rattling and something that shouldn't encourage. So they fell into line with the EU view and the US view um, that this was a display of nationalism, which which wasn't perhaps seemly and that that shouldn't really be supported. Although it must be noted that the Czech Republic president did attend from the EU, which I think took rather a lot of people by surprise. Finally, Clifford, uh, over the past few weeks, we've seen uh, a lot of market turbulence in China and also some doubts about the strength of the Chinese economy. Is there any question about whether China will be able to afford this restructuring of its military and particularly this investment in the Navy and in high-tech weaponry? 
I think um, what we've seen in the last couple of budgets, I mean, the budget has been growing by double digits every year, but the the growth has been slowing. Um, There could be an economic factor in in getting rid of the 300,000 troops. I mean, it would be a a big uh, wages saving. Um, What we saw in in last week's parade was perhaps a culmination of those many years of investment. And there were ICBMs, there were mid-range missiles, there were um, there were uh, carrier busters, as they're known. These sort of air, air, these missiles that can take out an aircraft carrier with a single strike. So, in some ways, the invest the major investment has already gone in there. Um, so now it becomes a question of rolling it out. So. Um, perhaps the new normal, as people discuss, as people call the economy here, uh, the current economic growth um, is known as the new normal. Um, perhaps in military terms, that will be a bedding down of the of the massive investment that's gone on in the last decade or so. So whether it will need the same levels of investment in coming years is is still quite an open an open question. Clifford Coonan in Beijing, thank you. You're listening to the Irish Times. Okay, that's it for this week. Thank you to Suzanne Lynch, Clifford Coonan, Declan Conlon, who produced, and sound engineer Gary White.